This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, listeners. Just a quick caveat before we begin. This story breaks the Wasteland formula a bit, but I wanted to tell it anyway. What I mean is, most of this tale takes place somewhere other than Florida. But, like a lot of stories, Florida is where it ends, or, for our purposes, it's where the thing begins. Please, enjoy the show. For the employees and customers of Goomba's Pizza, the night of Friday, January 23rd, 2009, probably started like most nights. The restaurant was located in the public shopping plaza near Palm Coast's town center, and it enjoyed a decent amount of foot traffic. On this particular night, tired parents might have been stopping in to pick up a to-go Italian dinner. Teenagers from Flagler Palm Coast High School might have been taking their dates for a slice of pizza. And maybe even the members of the Flagler Titans Pee Wee Football League were there, chowing down on trays of lasagna and baked ziti after a grueling practice session. The restaurant's security camera captured what happened next, when two customers approached the counter with a complaint. But the one thing we can know for certain is what the restaurant's security camera captured that night when two customers approached the counter with a complaint. One of the men had purchased a calzone for his 11-year-old daughter, who was still sitting at his table. Apparently, this calzone had not been to the little girl's liking. The employee behind the counter tells the man she will go and get the manager. A few seconds later, the manager enters the frame. He is a middle-aged man, uncharacteristically for his position, wearing a teal tracksuit with the hood pulled up over his head. He listens to the customer's complaint for a few moments, though there is no way to tell what is said as there is no available audio of the incident. However, if one looks closely at the footage, a small black object can be seen in the manager's hand, held surreptitiously below his waist and behind the counter out of the customer's line of sight. He's holding a gun. The conversation appears to become strained. No doubt the customer is unsatisfied with whatever meager restitution this manager is offering, if any. He puts out his hand, the universal sign for, give me back my money. This seems to be the last straw for the manager, so without warning, he vaults over the counter, losing his balance in the process, but still wildly swinging his gun at the complaining customer. The manager falls on top of the customer, and the two men go down to the floor, punching each other, with the manager landing a few pistol whips on his opponent, then losing his grip on the gun, causing it to go sliding under a booth. Within seconds, both struggling men flail out of the frame. Of course, this type of overreaction isn't as common as one might think in this neck of the woods, Florida's embarrassing reputation on Twitter notwithstanding. The manager was quickly arrested and taken to jail. And that's where this story starts to get really interesting. Not just Florida interesting. When the Palm Coast police began processing the manager, a 40-year-old man named Joseph Merlino, they soon discovered something. Joseph Merlino wasn't his real name. Sure, his first name was Joseph, but he went by Joey. Merlino's actual name was Joey Calco, a name that didn't mean much in the suburbs of Central Florida, but at one time, on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, his name was a bit more recognizable. Joey probably never envisioned his story ending like it did, in such an anticlimactic and comedic way, squirming around with an angry customer on the floor of a pizzeria he managed in Florida. Back in the early 1990s, when he was a kid who, as the saying goes, had nothing to lose and everything to prove, well, if you told that kid, that hard-headed, fearless kid who raised hell on the streets of Bath Beach, if you told him how he would eventually wind up, he never would have believed you. And, judging by his reputation during his heyday, 
Joey probably would have responded to your prediction with nothing less than shoving a gun in your face. The odds on whether he would have pulled the trigger would have been about 50-50. We'll get back to Joey Calco soon, but first, a quick history lesson. In the early 1920s, the Italian Mafia made their home primarily in New York City, it being the city where they landed when they emigrated. Back in the old days, the Mafia was composed mainly of young men from southern Italy as well as Sicily, and they answered to one man, the fittingly titled Joe the Boss Masseria. Before Joe became the boss, he was born into a family of Sicilian tailors in 1886, Joe made his way to the United States in 1902 at the age of 16, and soon after his arrival, he fell into the burgeoning world of Italian organized crime, which was centered around Lower Manhattan in Little Italy. Now, crime wasn't an uncommon line of work for Joe. He had emigrated only to avoid a murder charge back in Italy. Like many criminals before him, and many more after him, Joe would work himself up from nothing to sit the throne of organized crime in New York City. But that crown is one of the heaviest, and in 1922, Joe would earn himself the nickname The Man Who Can Dodge Bullets when rival Salvatore Diachia sent hired gun Umberto Valenti after him. Valenti and his men ambushed Joe outside of his apartment, but the future boss managed to duck into a 2nd Avenue storefront and escape. Still, the two bullet holes in his hat provided a grim reminder of how close he had come. While Joe was dodging bullets on the streets of New York, back in Sicily, in the beautiful waterfront town of Castellamare del Golfo, the powerful and enigmatic Don Vito Caschiofero had decided it was time to expand his operations into the United States. In 1925, Don Vito sent one of his most trusted men, Salvatore Maranzano, to vie for control of the Mafia in America. And it's from Don Vito and Maranzano's home in Sicily that the Castellamare's War gets its name. The war was fought between the Masseria and Maranzano factions, both groups boasting a who's who of future organized crime superstars. Joe's side included the future first among equals, Charlie Lucky Luciano, the architect of the modern mafia, the diplomatic Frank Costello, known as the Prime Minister of the Underworld, and one of the most prolific murderers and directors of murderers that the Mafia would ever see, Albert Anastasia, also known as the Lord High Executioner and the Mad Hatter, but never to his face. Maranzano's faction included Joseph, Joe Bananas Bonanno, whose namesake we will hear a few more times before this story concludes, Joe Profaci, the future leader of the war-torn Colombo family, home to Crazy Joe Gallo, and Joe Aiello, one of the only men brave enough, some might say foolish enough, to take on Al Capone during Prohibition. The two crews began trading blows in February of 1930, and the bullet-riddled bodies soon began piling up. By year's end, it was starting to look as if the tide was turning in Maranzano's favor. So, Charlie Lucky, ever the cunning strategist, decided to form an alliance. Charlie and his longtime friend Vito Genovese, who would soon lead the family that still bears his name to this day, approached Maranzano. They arranged to deliver up Joe the Boss in exchange for an end to the hostilities and, presumably, a return to the profitability that the Mafia is most concerned with. Joe the Boss met his end on April 15, 1931, at a Coney Island restaurant named Nuova Villa Tamaro. The meal had been eaten, the table cleared, and the earthy smell of cigar smoke hung in the air. Joe and some associates, Charlie Lucky among them, were deep into a card game. Charlie excused himself to go to the bathroom, and suddenly, because it never happens any other way, a group of men stormed the room and emptied their guns into Joe Masseria, once and for all ending his reign as the boss. It was rumored, but never proven, that the hit squad included the aforementioned Albert Anastasia, future political kingmaker Joe Adonis, 
and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy was a charismatic and handsome Jewish gangster who was so well-respected, the Italians eventually sent him to the Nevada desert to help create the Las Vegas Strip. And like Albert, you didn't ever want to call Benjamin by his nickname when he was within earshot. It would have been bad for your health. With the Castellamare's war over, Maranzano set about organizing the mafia into what would become known as the original five families, with each family being led by a boss. Those five men were Charlie Luciano, Joe Profacci, Vincent Mangano, Thomas Gagliano, and Salvatore Maranzano himself. Each family structure consisted of said boss, an underboss, a group of capos or captains, soldiers, and associates. Starting out at the rank of soldier, a member of the mafia had to be made or officially inducted, and they had to prove they were full-blooded Italians before they could join the organization. Associates were not required to be made, thus they could hail from any background, though the most lucrative rackets were off-limits to them. Maranzano made only one mistake, but it was a big one. He crowned himself the Capo de Tutti Capi, or the Boss of Bosses. Even though he was one of the five heads of the New York Mafia, he felt that his slice of the proverbial pie should always be the largest. Maranzano modeled his Mafia after the Roman Empire, with himself standing in for Julius Caesar. But Charlie Luciano did not see things this way. Maranzano didn't like Charlie's ambitions. He also didn't like his partnerships with Jewish gangsters like Meyer Lansky, who would one day come to be known as the mob's accountant. Maranzano soon realized that he had delegated too much to his subordinates. He began to grow paranoid. And in the world of organized crime, when someone as powerful and ruthless as Salvatore Maranzano becomes paranoid, people inevitably pay the ultimate price. Maranzano hired Irish hitman Vincent Call to assassinate Charlie. Call had earned himself the nickname Mad Dog due to his violent and brazen behavior. In early 1930, Call had gone to war with one of New York's most feared bootleggers, Dutch Schultz. Before the violence ceased, nearly 20 men had been killed, with four of Schultz's being taken out by none other than Call himself. Call was also infamous for a botched kidnapping that resulted in the death of a five-year-old. Call and his men were attempting to nab Joseph Rayo, one of Schultz's men. A gunfight erupted on the streets, and young Michael Vingali was shot, later dying in the hospital. But before Call could track Lucky down, Charlie's old friend, Meyer Lansky, warned him that Maranzano was gunning for him. When Lucky was summoned by Maranzano for a sit-down at the boss's office, along with Vito Genovese and Frank Costello, he knew none of them would ever leave the building alive. So, instead of Lucky, Vito, and Frank, four Jewish gangsters disguised as government agents arrived at Maranzano's office that day in September of 1931. They viciously stabbed Maranzano multiple times before they finally finished him off by shooting him. A clear message was sent. The last king was dead. And Mad Dog Call didn't fare so well either. He was murdered on February 8th, 1932 by unknown assailants. A $50,000 contract had allegedly been issued for his execution, but by whom, no one could say. With Maranzano gone, Charlie Lucky wouldn't make the same mistake his former boss of bosses made, so he outlawed the supreme position. Instead of grabbing the whole pie for himself, Lucky established the Commission, a governing body for the New York families as well as the other Italian organized crime groups throughout the U.S. The formation of the Commission signaled an entirely new era of crime, and an extremely lucrative one at that. You see, the Castellamare's War wasn't just a bloody conflict between two rival factions of the Mafia. It wasn't just about money or territory or even self-preservation. There was something else that compelled Lucky and his partners. The old guard of the Mafia had no vision. 
And to paraphrase the old saying, the young eventually eat their old. Joseph Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano belonged to the 19th century, and they were already young adults by the dawning of the 20th. These men were older, stubborn, steeped in the ways of the old country with little to no imagination. They preyed almost exclusively on their own people, actively resisting new ways to generate profits outside of their insular little bubbles. They were not open to the ideas of fresh-faced younger capos like Charlie Luciano and Vito Genovese. Men like Masseria and Maranzano were dubbed Mustache Peets. Charlie and his ilk, gangsters who had grown up in the US rather than in Italy, these men were called the Young Turks. And they had big ideas and the determination to realize them. Just so long as no one stood in their way. For the majority of the 20th century, the Italian Mafia dominated the underworld, especially in New York. In fact, it could be said that they were the underworld. Cosa Nostra, or Our Thing, became synonymous with the phrase organized crime. The next largest criminal organization couldn't hold a candle to the Mafia in its prime. Still, few things can be a monolith, much less remain one. In 1987, the heads of New York's five families were cut off during the landmark commission case. Four of the five bosses were slapped with 100 years apiece, ensuring they would all die in prison and the families that bore their names would be crippled forever. The only reason the government couldn't imprison all five bosses was that Big Paul Castellano, head of the Gambino family, had been assassinated by a rival faction of Gambinos, led by the least camera-shy mafioso to ever wear a $3,000 suit, John Gotti. In New York in the late 1980s, John Gotti was bigger than Mickey Mantle. He thumbed his nose at the traditional mafia rule of keeping a low profile, and somehow he beat case after case, strutting victoriously out of the Manhattan Federal Courthouse in expensive tailored suits, sporting an immaculate manicure and haircut. It was this attention to his appearance that earned him the nickname The Dapper Don, but it was his continued ability to avoid prosecution that saw the word dapper change to Teflon. It took Gotti's own underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, an admitted participant in 19 murders, to take down the Teflon Don. Sammy turned state's evidence in Gotti's 1991 trial, a flagrant violation of the mob's code of silence. In 1992, Gotti received a sentence of life while Sammy disappeared into the witness protection program. Some critics claim that it was a combination of the commission case and Sammy the Bull's turncoat testimony that put the final nail in the coffin of the American Mafia. An underboss, turning on the boss of his own family. It was anathema, as the old-timers say. But there was an upside to all this chaos. The government had their sights fully fixed on Gotti and the Gambinos, as well as the Lucchese's and the Genovese's and the Columbos were off warring amongst themselves as they were wont to do. It was during this period of upheaval and irrevocable change that the Bonanno family realized no one was looking at them anymore. Sure, they had suffered their own knocks during a particularly difficult period starting in 1964. Back then, boss and namesake Joe Bonanno engineered his own disappearance, making it look like he had been kidnapped. Joe had planned to assassinate several of his rivals who sat on the Mafia's commission. Fearing the ultimate reprisal when his plot was uncovered, Joe disappeared himself. The boss's absence led to a violent internecine conflict known as the Banana War. Once Banana resurfaced, he managed to avoid his own execution, but he was banished from taking a part in organized crime. The position of Bonanno family boss was held by several more men until it was seized by the feared and brutal Carmine Galante in 1974 while former boss Rusty Rastelli was doing 10 years for extortion. Carmine was known for his viciousness and the NYPD suspected his involvement in over 80 murders. Alleged further was that Carmine had enemy Frank Costello's mausoleum bombed in 1973. 
If nothing else, it sent the message that even the grave wouldn't save you from his reach. Carmine's reign lasted for five years until he met a spectacularly dramatic end on the rear patio of Joe and Mary's Italian-American restaurant. He was torn to shreds by three men wielding handguns and shotguns. Known on the street as the Cigar, Carmine went to his reward with exactly that clenched between his gritted teeth. Next to Albert Anastasia's bullet-riddled body covered in a sheet on the floor of Manhattan's Park Sheraton Hotel Barbershop, Carmine's bloodied corpse, cigar still in his mouth, is one of the most famous gangland photos ever taken. It seems Carmine's death had been partially engineered by Joseph Messino, a soldier who had remained loyal to incarcerated boss Rusty Rastelli. This act did not go unnoticed by those in the family who had been loyal to Galante. Several Bonanno Capos, Sonny Red Indelicato, Phil Giacone, and Dominic Trinchera began plotting the extermination of the Rastelli loyalist within the family. But Messino struck first, setting into motion what came to be known as the Three Capos Murders. Messino lured the three men to a Brooklyn social club in May of 1981, where they were ambushed and slain. An additional problem during this tense period was that the Bonanno family had an infiltrator in their ranks. Undercover FBI agent Joe Pistone, alias Donnie Brasco, had managed to almost climb the mob ladder to the rank of a maid soldier under capo Sonny Black Napolitano. However, Pistone was pulled from his assignment before this could take place, resulting in over 100 convictions of Mafia members. Needless to say, this was a massive embarrassment for the family. So, by the early 90s, the Bananos were indeed being counted out. But Joseph Messino, who had proved himself particularly cunning by helping take out Carmine Galante and his three loyal capos, was elected as boss in 1991 after Rusty Rastelli died in prison. Messino himself was in prison, finishing up a six-year bid. While he did his time, he was represented on the street by the reserved and well-respected Anthony Spiro. Spiro was the Bonanno Consigliere, or Counselor. This position is an advisory one in the family. It's a voice of reason to make sure cooler heads prevail and money continues to flow with a minimum of collateral damage. And in regard to keeping said money flowing and ultimately rebuilding the family, Spiro knew where he could get some help with that. Spiro spent much of his time in the borough of Brooklyn, tending to his coops of racing pigeons on the roof of a building in Bensonhurst. Every 4th of July in the adjacent neighborhood of Bath Beach, Spiro would stage an impressive fireworks display, pulled off with his arsenal of stolen fireworks, an enterprise that netted him millions annually. Still, Spiro was old school, having been made by Carmine Galante himself back in 77 in a ceremony alongside, ironically as it turned out, Joe Messino. Spiro was known for his diplomacy and the respect afforded to him was evident in his nickname, The Old Man. Spiro, like most of the mob guys in Bath Beach, spent a good portion of his time at the local social clubs which lined Bath Avenue. Social clubs were, historically, places where local mafiosi would meet to talk shop over espresso, maybe laced with a shot of anisette. In fact, Bath Avenue has been referred to as the heart of the mafia, as each of the five families had a presence on the street. Despite these more clandestine residents, the majority of Bath Beach consisted of working-class families going about the mundane business of their everyday lives. Of course, many of these families had children who wound up hanging out on the avenue, where the lure of fine clothes, fast cars, and easy money was a strong cocktail difficult to resist, even for an eight-year-old kid. And maybe, one fine summer day, Anthony Spiro, or maybe his close Columbo confidant, Greg Scarpa, alias the Grim Reaper, might have handed one of those boys the keys to his Cadillac to park it for him. Maybe they needed an errand done, a message sent, or a gun hidden. 
Maybe they were just in a generous mood and felt like handing some wide-eyed kid a $20 bill to go have some fun. Whatever the motive, many of the neighborhood kids were soon at Spiro's beck and call. Jimmy Calandria was one of them. Then there was Polly Galino, Tommy Reynolds, Fabrizio Di Francisi, and of course, our friend Joey Calco, whom we met earlier during a squabble over an allegedly substandard calzone. These young boys would soon grow to become young men, and along with a few of their friends, they would eventually form what became known as the Bath Avenue Crew. Polly Galino, or as he was known, Polly G, was the de facto leader of the Bath Avenue crew. In fact, when the boys got their ankles tattooed with a number indicating their membership in the crew, Polly's tattoo was number one. But this wasn't just because of his magnetism, his charisma, or his feared presence on the street. Polly was also the crew's direct link to Anthony Spiro and thusly the Bonanno family. He reported directly to the old man. The rest of the Bath Avenue crew had their hopes invested in Polly. He was the one most likely to be made when the Bonanos opened the books again, i.e. began inducting new members. And with things as they were after the commission case and John Gotti's spectacular fall, it was only a matter of time. The Bonanno ranks were thin, and with less eyes on them than the other families, it was the perfect time to start laying a strong foundation with some ferociously hungry new members. During the Bath Avenue crew's heyday in the late 80s and early 90s, they had their hands in just about every illicit business one could conceive of. Money lending, drug dealing, home invasions, and even bank robberies. And Anthony Spiro and the Bonanos got a chunk of everything they made. Now the Bath Avenue boys were not only well diversified when it came to their crimes, but they were also quite proficient at them. They made a lot of money and ensured that their benefactors got everything coming to them. And as for their reputation on the streets, perhaps the most valuable aspect of this entire way of life, it was solid. The boys from Bath Avenue were not to be trifled with. In fact, it was Polly G whom Spiro sought out to settle a dispute he had with a local burglar by the name of Vincent Bickelman. Bickelman made the fatal mistake of breaking into a young woman's home and pilfering a fur coat and some jewelry. Normally, this type of activity wasn't on the mob's radar, unless of course the one doing the burglary was expected to kick up a piece of his action to whichever family he was associated with. Unless, of course, the burglar was expected to kick up a piece of his action to whichever family he associated with. But Bickelman wasn't with the Bonanos, though, ironically, it might have gone worse for him if he was, all things considered. You see, the home he had broken into belonged to Spiro's daughter, Jill. One of the pieces Bickelman had taken even had her name inscribed on it. The burglary took place in August of 1991. By September... Vincent Bickelman had been found in his apartment, his body riddled with bullets, courtesy of Polly G. Allegedly. John Polio was one of the Bath Avenue crew's associates. Now, he may not have had the ankle ink, but he was counted among their ranks. One day, as many men associated with organized crime often do, John Polio wound up dead. A local hood by the name of Michael Hamster immediately began to take credit for the hit on polio. Later, the Bath Avenue crew would find out it actually wasn't Hamster, but the damage had been done, his fate all but sealed. Polio was dead, and Hamster was broadcasting all over the neighborhood that he was the killer. It was an audacious level of disrespect, whether Hamster was telling the truth or not. Something had to be done. The Bath Avenue boys were rising in the underworld, and the slightest knock to their ironclad reputation could take them from fearsome to something far less if an example wasn't made. After John's wake, Jimmy Calandria and Joey Calco promptly hunted Michael Hamster down, and using a 380 pistol given to them by Polly G, they shot him. Now, Jimmy and Joey were no strangers to firearms, but still, either the gun wasn't a high enough caliber, or perhaps... They were just unlucky. Michael Hamster survived this run-in with his would-be executioners. With the heat from an attempted murder hanging over the neighborhood, 
Jimmy went to Manhattan to stay with his father, and Joey fled to Italy for a year. But even though Jimmy and Joey were in the wind, that didn't mean that Michael Hamster was safe. Bath Avenue crew member Tommy Reynolds saw Hamster exiting the Cropsey Lounge a few months after the initial shooting. So Tommy put a bullet in Hamster's kneecap, but the Lucky Hood survived the attack once again. However, this time, Hamster's pain and suffering wouldn't go unanswered. Now, this story really is supposed to be about Joey Calco, and we've focused a bit more on the world that he hailed from. After all, Central Florida in the mid-2000s is another planet compared to Brooklyn in the early 1990s. So, before we move on, let's learn a little bit more about Joey. According to Jimmy Calandria, who has a bit of an internet presence telling old stories and interviewing other ex-mobsters about the old days on his YouTube channel, Joey Calco was, quote, a tough kid. But growing up, a lot of guys didn't like him because he was reckless and wild, end quote. It seems Polly G was the only local hood who would take a liking to Joey and provide him with a spot in a crew. According to Jimmy, Joey came from money. His father owned the Calco Brothers Construction Company. Joey could have gone into the family business, could have made a comfortable life for himself without ever becoming involved in the street. But the lure of fast money and life-or-death decisions made in the split second it takes to pull a trigger were obviously just too much. Joey was a part of the life, a Bath Avenue original, and hopefully, if Spiro could be convinced and all the saints smiled down on him, he could one day be a made guy. But according to Jimmy Calandria, that was never in the cards for Joey Calco. Despite being in the streets, Joey did occasionally work for his father. One day he was at a job on 20th Avenue, and he decided to make a run to Dunkin' Donuts. As Joey left the construction site, he didn't see that he was being watched closely by Michael Hamster and another neighborhood tough, John Dunn. Joey entered the Dunkin', ordered what we can assume is enough donuts for some hungry construction workers in need of a mid-morning snack, as well as some coffee. As Joey exited the store, his purchases in hand, he didn't realize he was walking right into an ambush. Michael Hamster and John Dunn opened fire on the young, aspiring wise guy. Joey was hit several times, but he was able to return fire, chasing off Hamster and Dunn and ultimately surviving this extremely close shave. If the execution of John Polio put Michael Hamster in the Bath Avenue crew's sights, The attempt on Joey all but signed his death warrant. Joey was an initiated member of the crew. He answered to the guy who answered to Anthony Spiro. He had the ankle ink. This would not stand. After a brief recovery, Joey got together with the rest of the crew, Tommy Reynolds, Fabrizio DeFrancisi, and Pauly G. Jimmy Calandria was unable to participate as he was doing a short bid on Rikers for a stabbing. The crew of Bath Avenue Tufts devised a plan and quickly set it into motion. The crew stole a car and a van to do the forthcoming work and posted up near John Dunn's house close to the intersection of Bay 13th and Cropsey Avenue. Joey and Tommy waited in the car while Fabrizio sat behind the wheel of the van. No doubt these mobsters in training talked about what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, worrying the plan over and over until it was all but playing out on the street before them. And soon enough, John Dunn pulled up in front of his house, with the added bonus of Michael Hamster in his passenger seat. This was the crew's chance to get even. They gunned their stolen vehicles quickly through the intersection and blocked Dunn's car in. When their prey was suitably immobile, Tommy and Joey began firing their guns into Dunn's car. Tommy landed a few hits on Dunn, shooting him several times in the chest, 
but the wounded Hood still managed to flee the vehicle, making it all the way to the front yard of a neighbor's house. Despite the gunshots, the neighbor graciously answered John's pleas and pulled him inside. He would survive. Michael Hamster was also hit several times, but he too managed to exit the car and start limping toward the intersection. Not willing to let Hamster get away a third time, Joey took aim with a shotgun and dropped Hamster right there in the middle of the street. Tommy exited the car and quickly closed the distance to Hamster's body. Without ceremony, he put his pistol to the wounded man's head and pulled the trigger. And discovered he was out of bullets. Knowing it would only be minutes before the police arrived, Tommy angrily returned to the car and drove off, Fabrizio following behind in the van. It should be said that Fabrizio was probably feeling a bit anxious as well, which would be understandable in this situation. He and his friends had just attempted a double murder. But no, Fabrizio was unsettled for another reason. During the shootout, he froze up. He had never killed anyone before. This was not going to sit well with Polly G. And Michael Hamster survived once again. Incredibly, Tommy and Joey were pulled over blocks away from the still-breathing body of Michael Hamster, the luckiest Brooklyn Hood to ever live. As the cop began to question the two shooters about where they were headed, he received a call over his radio that there had just been a double shooting not far from his position. The cop squinted down into the vehicle and delivered a line he had probably always wanted to say, Today's your lucky day. Then he got back in his squad car and sped toward Cropsey Avenue. But the officer's words would prove to be sadly ironic. The world of organized crime, even for a young crew like the boys from Bath Avenue, is one fraught with peril, and the slightest misstep can spell disaster. One of the crew's most lucrative businesses was selling crack, a trade that the mafia claimed to be above, though most of the families still accepted the boatloads of cash gleaned from this, quote, dirty business. But Tommy Reynolds was disobeying the number one rule of drug dealing, to wit, don't get high on your own supply. As evidenced by his dominant role in the vicious shooting of Michael Hamster, Tommy's behavior was becoming more and more violent and unstable because he was using his own product. And as is the case with most addicts, they will go to great lengths to feed their habit. So when Tommy heard about a local score, an unguarded safe holding untold riches stashed in a basement, he brought the job to Jimmy Calandria and another associate of the crew named Chris Ludwigson. Tommy claimed to have the intel on the residents' comings and goings. They would go in when no one was home and net themselves some easy money. On the night they arrived at the home in question, Jimmy knocked on the door, just a precaution to make sure no one was home. So, the three young men were more than a little surprised when the door was opened by a middle-aged woman with a puzzled look on her face. Perhaps she posed a few questions to these tough-looking boys on her doorstep. Did they know how late it was? Did they have the wrong house? Maybe she said nothing. Unfortunately, Tommy, his nerves shot, likely from the drug habit he was trying to feed, wasn't paying attention to the gun he was holding in his hand. His finger twitched on the trigger. He shot the woman in the head. And as she fell to the floor dead, the three Bath Avenue gangsters noticed her nine-year-old son standing in the living room behind her. There was no safe. Maybe there had never been a safe. Maybe it was the wrong house. Either way, it was bad luck, and it should have been the universal signal that the Bath Avenue crew was out of control. Of course, Bath Avenue wasn't the only crew in the neighborhood who had a fierce reputation. Over on 20th Avenue, there was a similar group of delinquents, just as violent and ambitious. And since the borough just wasn't big enough for both groups, they inevitably began to butt heads, turning their Brooklyn neighborhood into a shooting gallery. Eventually, things between the two crews got so bad, Jimmy Calandria wouldn't leave his house without multiple guns and a bulletproof vest. After the botched home invasion and the escalating violence with the crew from 20th Avenue, Anthony Spiro had finally had enough. This was no way to rebuild the Bonanno family. 
The violence was bringing too much attention, something that an elder mafia statesman like Spiro despised. There was a reason the government tried to get John Gotti so many times, even after they failed time and time again. There was a reason that they used an admitted serial killer like Sammy Gravano to bring him down. There are some conventions that just cannot be flouted. And the number one rule of Cosa Nostra? Keep a low profile. Letting the violence continue would bring the FBI down on all of their heads, so Spiro reached out to both the Bath Avenue crew and the boys from 20th Avenue to arrange a sit-down. In mob parlance, this is where two parties who have a problem meet on neutral ground to resolve said problem, sans bullets, knives, garrots, and the occasional car bomb. Peace was what was best for everybody. It was the right thing for Spiro and the Bananos, for the neighborhood, and for the young gangsters themselves but Pauly G was not so easily convinced. Pauly wanted his button from the Bonanos, i.e. his recognition of official membership in the family. He kicked up a piece of every score the Bath Avenue crew made to Spiro. Pauly wanted Spiro's full support to go to war with 20th Avenue, to wipe them out for good. After all, he'd earned it. Spiro saw things another way, so Pauly did the unthinkable. Polly approached Spiro in public. Words were exchanged. And then, not liking the sound of those words, Polly Galino shoved Anthony Spiro. He didn't pull a gun on him. He didn't take a swing at him. He simply shoved him. And with Spiro standing in the Bonanno family, that was enough. Polly had just drafted his own death sentence. To put hands on a made man, it simply isn't done. Many men, far more respected in the Mafia than Pauly Galino, had done that very same thing and paid the ultimate price for it. And Pauly wasn't a member of the family. He was still hanging on the lowest rung of the Mafia as an associate. His action was unthinkable. Spiro turned his back on the young gangster and soon got word to the Bath Avenue crew. Pauly had to go. And, as is tradition in these matters, his friends, the people who could get closest to him, were the ones who would make it happen. It was July of 1993, and Pauly, who was no idiot, despite his loss of temper with Anthony Spiro, knew he was a marked man. So he stayed holed up in his Brooklyn apartment, shut away from the action of the street. The neighborhood that had nurtured him and provided him with a cover to commit crime since he had started running numbers and messages for the Bananos at eight or nine years old, that neighborhood was now the most dangerous place in the world. Spiro would see him dead and there was nothing he could do about it. Still, Polly trusted his brothers from Bath Avenue. They would never turn on him. One day in July, there came a knock at his apartment door. Carefully opening it, probably clutching a pistol in one hand, Polly saw it was Tommy Reynolds and Joey Calco. They weren't just his brothers, they were also, for all intents and purposes, his subordinates. And Tommy and Joey were welcome in his apartment any time. As the two men entered, Tommy casually asked Polly for a drink. When Polly turned and opened the refrigerator, that's when Joey Calco raised his gun and pumped two bullets into the back of Polly's head. The two men left the apartment, their former leader and friend dead on the kitchen floor. Jimmy Calandria was incarcerated when Polly Galino met his inauspicious end, and when Jimmy came home in 1998, he was still upset about the lack of loyalty among what seemed to be turning into his former crew. Joey Calco had committed yet another murder and fled once more to Italy. The word on the street was that when Joey returned home, he would be taken care of. People were tired of his violent antics. But the botched home invasion came back to haunt Jimmy, and he soon found himself on trial in 1999. Several of his former friends, including Joey, who was trying to extricate himself from his own legal troubles, turned on him and testified for the government. Joey alleged that it was Spiro who had ordered him to kill Polly Galino. So seeing no way out of a life behind bars, Jimmy testified against the crew's mentor as well. Jimmy's testimony helped put Anthony Spiro in prison for life, Joey Calco received nine years in 2004, with six already served. After Joey was released, well, we know the rest. He received a new name, a new social security number, and found himself a new home in the Witness Protection Program. And in 2007, he left the cold bleakness of New York to be closer to his parents in sunny Palm Coast, Florida. 
The boys from Bath Avenue turning on each other wasn't the biggest surprise. Though the code of mafia silence, omerta, was often spoken of as a holy vow, by the late 90s and early aughts, it was rarely observed. In fact, the boss of the Bonanno family, Joe Messino, the man who had helped to orchestrate the murder of his own boss, Carmine Galante, and three of his loyal capos, even he ended up turning on his own people. When Joe came home from prison in 1992, he realized, not without some level of self-satisfaction, that he was truly the last of a dying breed. Joe was known to some as the last Don, the only remaining old-school mafioso on the street after Gotti went away for life and the heads of the five families had been lopped off. Messino didn't even let anyone use his name. He directed those closest to him to put their hand to their ear when they needed to reference him, earning him the nickname The Ear, much in the same way that Genovese boss Vincent Gigante went by the alias The Chin. Though Messino was considered a relic of the past when he came home, he wasted no time in moving the Bananos out of more high-risk violent crime and into the financial sector. No longer was the family solely reliant on things like loan sharking and theft. Messino got the family involved in various stock swindles connected to Wall Street, running a series of boiler rooms engaged in pump-and-dump schemes. Joe even started closing the social clubs for fear of audio surveillance and easier recognition by federal agents. The careful Messino was a tough fish to land, but the government eventually got him. Joe was arrested in 2003 on racketeering charges that included several murders. Messino's underlings began to jump ship, including his own brother-in-law, Sal Vital, who had served as his underboss. When Messino was convicted on 11 counts of racketeering and sentenced to life imprisonment, he decided that omerta or not, this just wouldn't do. So Joe Messino himself turned state's evidence, giving information on murders and other crimes deemed important enough to wipe his own slate clean. He was granted supervised release in 2010. This was, ostensibly, the last gasp of the American Mafia. A sitting New York boss had never informed before, though Ralph Natal, the boss of Philadelphia, had ratted in 1999 to avoid drug charges. But New York was where Cosa Nostra was born. It was where it thrived, and now an old-school New York boss had become a turncoat rather than face what was coming to him. It was the end of an era. If viewed in the context of the Mafia's whimpering end, Joey Calco's brash and completely self-destructive actions on January 23, 2009 should come as no surprise. He was simply unable to reconcile who he used to be with who he had chosen to become. And in 2010, it was this lapse in judgment that earned him 10 years in prison for being a felon in possession of a firearm and an additional three years for the Calzone assault. A fitting end for the man some have dubbed, a bit grandiosely, the Prince of Bath Avenue. I grew up what you might call pseudo-Italian. I'm two generations removed from the boat on my mom's side. My great-grandfather, Frank Santapietro, arrived in New York in the 1920s with enough Italian money in his pocket to exchange for a bus ticket to Waterbury, Connecticut, and a jelly donut. He didn't speak a word of English, but that didn't stop him from getting a job in a foundry and marrying my great-grandmother Josephine, who gave birth to my grandmother Marie. And even though the pounding machines in that foundry cost him much of his hearing, Frank Santapietro loved America. He never went back to Italy, not even when his mother became ill and died. My great-grandparents stayed in Waterbury, and eventually my grandmother met my grandfather, Paul, and after they were married, they had three children, the oldest being my mother, Diane. My grandfather had fought in World War II, seeing a good bit of action in France during the tail end of the war. When he came home, he just wanted to live the peaceful life. He got a job as a toolmaker to support his new family. And after 20 years, the company sent him to Florida, where he actually helped perfect the modern plastic syringe. Soon, my mom met my dad, Robert, and then there was me, a Florida native with just a wisp of the old country in his DNA. Of course, growing up, I heard all the stories about the old neighborhood back in Waterbury. The massive family meals, the three family houses, the gardens, the wine presses in the basements, all the neighborhood characters. 
But soon after I was born, my great-grandparents died, and with them went most of the traditions. I got the tail end of an Italian upbringing. Instead of sauce with pork bones simmering on the stove all day, we had ragu in the can. Instead of homemade wine, we drank Coca-Cola at family dinners. No pasta was rolled, and the only Italian I heard spoken was the occasional curse word. But when my parents, perhaps irresponsibly, allowed me to watch The Godfather when I was about five or six, it began a lifelong fascination with the other thing Italians are known for, besides food and wine and family. Organized crime. Of course, there are a lot of Italians who hate this association, and to be fair, it only represents a small fraction of the Italian people. But nearly everyone is fascinated by outlaws, and not to put too poetic a point on it, the Mafia were outlaws. In their heyday, they ran rampant over the conventions of normal American society. They took what they wanted when they wanted it, and God help you if you got in their way. You see, the Mafia was never as romantic as Puzo and Coppola portrayed them. Just a cursory viewing of The Sopranos will reveal the truth. They were, and still are, violent sociopaths. Nevertheless, growing up without any real Italian traditions, watching mob movies and reading about their real-life counterparts became a small way for me to connect with some piece of my heritage. I know it's not the most ideal way to honor one's culture, what with the shootings, leg breakings, and body dismemberments, but still there was something about the take-no-shit attitude of the wise guy that always attracted me. It made me feel like I came from sterner stuff, even though no one in my family ever even had so much as a conversation with somebody in the Mafia. So, if you detected a bit of enamoredness in my tone during this episode, perhaps you could excuse it just this one time. We'll call it an offer. I hope you don't refuse. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.